One of the questions I always ask when looking at the potential for business success is, is your business a painkiller or is it a vitamin? But what about when your business is not a metaphorical vitamin, but an actual vitamin? This week, I speak with Radek Sali, marketer extraordinaire who shares with me how you sell a vitamin. It's an incredible story that offers many marketing firsts. Speaking of marketing firsts, Radek was in front of the curve when it came to personal wellness and the wellness trend, and not just on trend, but created part of the momentum. Moreover, when it comes to company culture, Radek was light years ahead of the trend and his competitors in building great workplace culture and great places to work. Whilst the Swiss story is an incredible success story, you will hear also of recent high-profile challenges and the stories behind them too. Enjoy our discussion. Radek Sali, Chairman and Founder, Light Warrior Group, Director, Hawthorne Football Club. Welcome to Discipline. (laughs) Thank you. What did you want to be when you were a young boy? It was something that kind of came to me pretty early on that... I love the old, I had a real fascination with the word entrepreneur and what it meant and what it was to be that. And I never really articulated that that's what I wanted to be, but it was always in my conscience. So yeah, I've ended up becoming an entrepreneur. I haven't met anyone who as a young person wanted to be an entrepreneur because going back in the day, that would have been Bond and Scase would have been going around. Ah. Surely they were dirty words back then, entrepreneurs. Yeah, they were, but there's still some aspirational personalities out there. Uh, Rupert Murdoch, yep. um, Richard Branson, yep. um, just to name a few that I remember. And I'm sure if I think about it more, there'll be others. Now, I know you worked at Village for some time. But tell us about your sort of school journey and getting into work. What, what, what was that like for Radek Sali? Yeah, so Radek Sali is, is, really, is a really apt way of asking that question because with a name like mine, it was difficult to get a gig, a casual gig, and I applied for a lot of roles like at McDonald's. And you know, I had friends that worked there, and I'd say, why, why aren't I getting an interview? And they yeah. said, I can't say your name. Is it, <laughs> so, I have to ask, is, so, it, is it Czech? Yes, yeah, so Czech and Albanian, right, and I was born okay. in Scotland, so I'm, I'm an Aussie mongrel. And, and, and so I had this name that you know managers would find difficult to pronounce, so they would wouldn't interview me. So I'd have to make sure that I, I got in front of people and and got talking and then I'd break down that barrier of getting past go with my name. Um, and, and I worked a whole heap of casual jobs and loved each of them for various reasons from the, you know, the first gig I did, uh, which is a paper round. Yep. And I, I, I'll never forget the day I called in sick, which I haven't ever done since, to go fishing. Um, but I, I did that paper round diligently every day after school, delivering the, the Herald it was back then in the afternoons. And I had a bike that was far too big and I was paid $7 a week for, for uh, you know, it was seven hours work. This um, is a hour. classic entrepreneur story though, <laughs> yes. isn't it? The old paper round. <laughs> yeah, correct. Um, and then, you know, progressed into cleaning delis and, 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 and working factories um, and, and, and then finally... Uh, when I was leaving school, I had to get something that was a little bit more fun, um, and and that was cinema. And yep. everyone worked, wanted to work at the video shop or or the cinema, and and we thankfully had some contacts through family that opened some doors uh, for us to to get an interview. Yep. And, and I got interviewed by the CEO of Village Roadshow yeah, at the right. time, and um, he asked me. You know, at the end of the interview, he goes, oh, that went really well. And so which which uh, complex do you want to work at? And I said, oh, Fountain Gate. Sorry, no, Forest Hill. And he, he goes, that's a Hoyt. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so it was a great start. But I ended up, needless to say, I started working at Doncaster. Um, so, and Village Doncaster. And that was great training ground and my apprenticeship yep. for um, what what happened later and, and to me it was an apprenticeship I was getting paid at university to you know I was getting so I was paying for my university course but then I was getting paid to yep. learn about the language of business and I took my job really seriously yep. from when I left school and um, and and it meant that you know by the time I was 20 I was managing people my own age and, and older than me yes. and I had to start 
working out what it took to to get the best out of people. Yeah, and you weren't giving uh, free tickets to your mates then if you're taking your job seriously back then. Yeah, I watched a lot of friends do that, and um, it just didn't sit right with me. Um, it was it was all about um, doing what was right and respectful, and um, and also the, the the mates you'd connect with. Uh, were, were people that accepted that you know that that was the right thing to do, yeah. and as long as you were the same person um, outside of work as you were at work, um, it really really worked. And for it. this this day and age, I've always made sure that that's who I am. Yeah, bring my authentic self to whatever I do. Yeah, good. And when you're doing this and you're getting into your twenties, there's obviously the people side. I, I take you like that as well. But what kind of skills start to blossom for you? Where do you start to feel you're you're strong as a as a as working in business, yeah, I think that that understanding that not to waste any time when you're doing something. So many of us do something for the sake of to supplement a university course. You know, why not go in there and and do it as good or better than what you'd do your university course? Yeah, um, and 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 that to me is 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 kind of a, a thread that I, I like to reinforce along the way. You know, any of us working, we, we spend more times more time in work than anything else really yeah. in our lives. Yeah. And and you know, why would you turn up and give uh, give your half self to it? Yeah. And and so I, I challenge people to you know to be elite at what they do. Like yeah. an athlete chooses to be an elite athlete, and don't waste your time. Yeah. Get stuck into whatever you're doing, and and it'll give so much back if you do do that. Yeah. I had a I had a friend, um, Gavin Samuels, who was. Highly intelligent guy, ex-doctor, and he one day said to me uh, over a couple of drinks, you're going to go to work anyway. You're going to have to do it. Why not be great at it? And that stuck with me. It's a similar kind of uh, ethos. Now, how do you go from village? How do you get into Swiss vitamins? How, how Did you fall into this? Did you know about it? Was there a connection? Tell us that story. Yeah, so, uh, you know, it, 12, 12 years after working at a village, I was kind of, I could see it, about nine years into that runway that my runway and my journey was kind of running out there. And I was in my kind of 27 odd, and um, there was no way I was going to be CEO of a company like Village. It was a big company listed. And um, they actually just had a CEO who was 30 that. Was was very good, but didn't work out, um, and and so it ruined it for you. Didn't really ruin it for me, but, but probably so, that did the right thing yeah, for me in the end because yeah. I, I kind of landed on my two feet as a result. And it's probably time to get out of the industry and and, yep. and change. But you know, it does sort of make me think about some of the greatest entrepreneurs. A lot of them are founders that have changed and have you know made the commitment to to really become extraordinary what they do by reinventing themselves so um and some of the names we talked about like rupert and and and, and richard are, are still leading their organizations um and have gone through massive seismic change and they got damn good at it so yeah. practice their kind of superpower and got stronger and stronger at it um so anyway so for me I'd, I'd kind of run into too many walls and it was time for me to change um but it wasn't as big a change as what a lot of people thought because my father's a professor of medicine my mum's a okay. medical scientist so you know growing up with a professor he's going to lecture to you and, and a professor that was one of the first in conventional medical circles to talk about diet causing disease he did this in the 70s he'd done a whole lot of research and he did get published in the 90s so you know he would talk to me all the time yep. about how lifestyle affects uh, our, our, you know the length of life that we'll live and, and chronic disease so I kind of had a head start and I was kind of going into something that I, I knew quite a bit about already and and then so and for me disruption occurs when you bring uh, you know two specific skill sets together and and do something that that hasn't been done in a traditional way that suddenly, challenges an industry to, to, to change. And so, you know, at Village, we had new product every week, new films, and we had a very sexy product that everyone wanted to talk about, films, movie yep. stars. Yep. And I suddenly went to, to Swiss, you know, where I'd tell people I worked there, they'd say, what, the embassy? And I'd say, no, no, vitamins. And then, you know, most of them would change the subject because they didn't have anything to say because most of the products in the vitamin space would be the only way they would market is, you know, if you have a UTS, which is a urinary tract, UTI, I should say, a urinary tract infection, 
um, or you know, IBS irritable bowel yeah. syndrome, and not really. There was the old barbecue tablets yeah, growing correct. up. Correct. So, yeah. so nothing really that aspirational. So, all of a sudden, I was pretty boring at at, at um, barbecues, and occasionally, some people would say, "Oh, yeah, I take a vitamin." And I go, "Which one?" They go, "Centrum," and they'd say the one with uh, Rob DeCastella. Rob DeCastella, yeah, yeah. And and fish so oils. Yeah, you know, it was just it was just a multivitamin. Oh, is that it? And it was okay. it was probably the cheapest possible multivitamin that you could make. Yeah. Um, but it was getting it would be the only one that was getting cut through. And actually, when I walked into every store nationally, I'd, I'd look at this wall of centrum and I'd go, you must get a great margin. And they'd say, no, um, the margins aren't great, but they advertise and they give us great point of sale. And there's this picture with Rob Dickerstel holding the product. Yeah, it was a cutout of him. Correct, that's yeah, it. Yeah. And, and, and they had the ad, advert on TV and uh, 52 weeks of the year, so it sold itself. And so the pharmacists would range it. And, and so I go, hang on, we can do this better. And, and we can take some of the aspiration out of, um, out of cinema that we'd learn and, and bring some of that star power to tell the story. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then cross over that with sports people as well. Yeah. So Ricky Ponning was our first ambassador and yes. soon after that was Sonia Kruger. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're gonna, you've already started answering the question mm. I was going to ask because, you know, in business, especially when I was doing the incubator, I'd always ask your founder, is your business an aspirin or is it a vitamin? Mm. And so the question I actually wanted to ask is when your business is actually a vitamin, how do you sell a vitamin? Mm, correct. And and the thing around a vitamin, um, which aspirin now is under the same sort of conduit because um, it's now no longer patented. And, and so and most okay. vitamins are not patented. Yeah. Um, they're available to everyone. So it comes down to the quality of vitamin that you choose to use, which is really hard to express under our laws in Australia. So then it comes down to your way of telling the story of how you're using that nutrition. And so we always chose premium ingredients. We're a company called Swiss. We couldn't manufacture anything else because Switzerland is known for its premium ingredients. We had to think global from yep. the outset. And, and so as a result of that thingy, we had premium ingredients and that made, meant that we had the highest retention of any brand in the category, over 60%. So when people tried our product, they'd come back to it because they were noticing the difference. We couldn't explain that in terms because there are, there are, there are some nuances in our laws here that don't allow us to do that. Um, and, and so we would have to then get personalities that people would link to using the best products yep. and choosing a premium. And so Ricky Ponning, who was the captain of our cricket team, was the, the perfect person to start doing that. We knew he took the product because the dietitian supplied product to the cricket team. And when we spoke to him, um, he, he really liked what we did and, and liked the product and had been using it for quite a while. So it was easy for him to talk about it. And yep. the same thing happened with Sonia Kruger. And, and that happened because I went to Priceline, who were one of our biggest customers, and the buyer there eventually started working with us. I, I said to her, we got Ricky Ponning as our ambassador. And she said, who? So I went home to mum, because uh, 95% of Priceline's customers are female. I went home to mum, and I said, who, what are you watching on TV? She's Dancing with the Stars. Yes. And uh, there's some more research. It's the biggest rating show on the, at the at the time, yep. and Sonia Kruger was the host of it, female, and and so I went back to Priceline and said, "We get Sonia Kruger. How do you feel about that? Fantastic!" And you know, we're the first to advertise in lifestyle programs with uh, the lifestyle talent in in the actual advert during the program. So yep. um, Sonia Kruger starring in the advert during Dancing with the Stars. So now you can blame us for making all those all those I will, others. I will blame you. <laughs> um, there's been a lot of copycats as mm. well since then. Mm. Um, did you notice, I mean, it's quite a big investment to get someone like a Ricky Ponding in to be a brand ambassador. Mm. Did you notice a correlative uptick mm. once the advertising started? Did you ever not see it and go, oh, God, we've made a, a huge investment, it's not going to pay off, or did it immediately bear fruit? It was a long, slow burn, and and advertising delivers growth. And you you can you, you should advertise if you're very confident your product's one of the best in market, which we had that because of the retention levels, um, and then we had the science supporting whatever we we're making. That's why we're getting those retention levels. So that was a really intricate part, and we knew that you know pharmacists were really supportive of our product because the customers just kept coming back after they recommended it. Yeah. So getting out there confidently talking about it was really the important next step. 
but getting cut through was was the other thing, and and Ricky demanded that. Uh, Ricky costed a lot of money, but we made sure we saved on the TV advert production. So as a package, it, we really didn't make high, you know, high um, quality adverts. I think I remember it, it just yeah. walked out of a net and Correct. started talking. Yeah. So that really <clears throat> simple adverts. Yeah, yeah, but. We just wanted to get the message out there. And because not many people were using ambassadors like we were, and you know, by the end of my time at Swiss, we had over 300, people knew ambassador, I'm going to listen in. And the only time we'd advertise with those personalities were in the program that they were relevant in. Yeah. We wouldn't have Sonia Kruger in the cricket, nor would we have Ricky Ponning um, in Dancing with the Stars yeah. because we want to just talk to that audience. So a lot of people wouldn't know. They might know two or three ambassadors of ours, but they wouldn't know the full gamut because we were, we were micro-segmenting and marketing. And it's almost a form of <coughs> ambush marketing, isn't it? You know, they're watching the cricket and they see Ricky Ponting come up, so there's already an affinity the audience has towards that particular person. So it's kind of like you're ambushing them again and, you know, attaching your wagon to that production. That's right. And and so and and that's become more and more important as media's become more segmented is event TV. And so we'd always go for these big events like the Olympics or Alan DeGeneres and we brought it to Australia. Yes. You know, we, we, we'd have to get bigger and bigger in how we position ourselves, the voice and, and having Ricky Martin do a special VIP concert for us and star in adverts during the voice and, and the show. So you know, we're always tricking it up and changing it up and staying well ahead of our competitors and but using a different um, form of how we were calculating connection to our market. Um, and the other thing that we were really careful of is we used research as a tool, um, but it was never the driver for how we made decisions. Yep. So um, my, my big beef was that anyone, anyone that would advertise in our category I could even broaden that out into the health industry. If you actually covered the logos, it could be the same ad for an insurance company, a health insurance company. It could be the same ad for a natural products company. It could be the same ad for a healthy food product. They are all very, very similar yep. in what they're presenting. And so we wanted to have our own style, get our own level of cut through um, and really segregate ourselves from the past. And did you get lucky because some of those ambassadors Swiss had did get into trouble down the line and have some bad press in those early days where you're spending money and you're relying on those people having a clean rap sheet? Mm -hmm. um, You know, you didn't have any any major scandals. I mean, Ponding had had his bourbon and beefsteak moment before uh, coming to Swiss. So did you get lucky? Do you ever think about that? What if they get caught up in a scandal? I think Australia got bowled out on the Boxing Day test for less than 100 runs, the lowest ever in our second year of advertising. So it was our second Ricky Ponting campaign. And we got a, a raft of phone, angry phone calls saying it was our product that had caused it and how dare you, you know, you destroy the Australian cricket the Australian team. Cricket so I, I think that, yeah, you, you have your bumps. And, and we're all human and you have your ups and downs. Yeah. And that's, that's why it was so important for us never to have one personality vampire the brand. And, yeah. Um, we would always move on to the, the next um, individual. But the other thing is, you, you know, people do look at the individual on the test of time and, and whilst they, they might be out of fashion for a few months, there was a good reason for why they got to where they got to and, and they'll always be back and revered. Like like probably no one really reckons remembers the hard Ricky Ponding years. They all remember him as the, the golden age of cricket's captain. Yeah, yeah, no, he was, he was a tremendous cricketer. I'm telling my son constantly how good. You want to play the pull shot? <laughs> Watch Ricky Ponding. Watch Ricky, yeah. Um, now, the other thing that's really interesting, so you've got this macro external brand ambassadors that you're a leader in your field. You're also a leader internally with this culture of celebrate life every day. And you were, in my opinion, a decade in front of this cultural movement to introduce wellness into office spaces, look after staff. How did you come up with this? Why were you motivated in this field to, to create this cultural space? Yeah, so... I've just told you about all of the things that our competitors could see about our products, so they could they could follow us. So for me, it's all, all it's all about scrambling the code. So and and yet we we complicated it enough that they wouldn't get 
everything about our marketing, but there was still always a risk that you could, if you're really learned about it, you could deliver everything we're doing. And same with our products, everything on the label was what was in the product. And, and yes, if you wanted to work really hard to get those same ingredients, you could get those same ingredients. It wasn't paid murder or anything like that. So, so those were all the peripheral things. Um, but the, the internal thing, the culture is just impossible to, to copy. So, and for me, just the fundamental of, I've been in a bad relationship once and I'm sure we've all been in a bad relationship, whether it's with someone you love or thought you loved. And, um, and then, you know, how bad have you been for each other? And so I think of workplaces, you know, there's so many people in these bad relationships where they don't feel great about coming into work and they're not challenging each other to become better and that's a good relationship. And, you know, all your friends tell you after you break up from that relationship, gee, you're a much better person. As you know, you're at. Well, thanks for telling me while I was in it. Uh, but, you know, and, and we all know those people. And, and so, so for me... Um, it, the thing that kept me up at what night was how people felt about yeah. coming into work yeah. and were they inspired. Yeah. And where do you get that notion from? I mean, you know, you, you're working for someone else at Village, so you don't need to think like that. When did that leadership mentality dawn on you that actually I'm a leader here, I want people to want to come into work? Because it's not, for some people they just don't care. So why care? So I think it's about learning what not to do. And I had some great CEOs who were really experienced and learned that managed me in my time at Village. And one of them, you know, I, 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 I you know, you know, you'd walk past him and you'd say hello and he'd look the other way. Um, I'd, I'd say, you know, we've got a team working over Christmas, New Year. Can you come and inspire the, the management team because we're going to be working every day through? Um, and he said, yeah, sure, and got up and said, you know, to those of you working Christmas, New Year, bad luck. Um, and, and to those of you having time off, enjoy your time off. And so, forth. so that was great. And, and, and you know, I, I saw him fire someone by saying zap. Um, and, and, and he did say to me, if I wanted loyalty, get a dog. And, and so my reaction to that sort of management, and I'd watch others just how, you know, and, and you compared to other times when we had great leaders and how engaged people were. Yeah. Well, hang on, there's something in this. We need to be thinking about it. And then even in just managing my team, if as a supervisor or any time I was given more, um, responsibility. It was about bringing everyone close and together, and and we'd get our best work done when we're all um, on the one page and clear on what we were supposed to contribute, and all aligned and had buy-in on 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 our plan. And and so it it just for me just makes so much natural sense that people are going to be happy in what they do, and and if you're not managing your culture as uh, as importantly as your business plan. You're, 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 you're going to fall over. And you say loyalty. You mentioned loyalty in that. I mean, loyalty is one of your big traits. You you know stand up for your people. You back your people in. Um, again, is this a natural aspect of your personality that you're fiercely loyal and protective of people? Look, I think that you really want that out of any good relationship. You 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 earn that, and 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 it's a two way street, and and it's hard to to ensure that both of you are delivering that and some hard conversations have to happen and open feedback and and honesty is is a really huge part of that um, but that's not easy and and so for those that are up for that that sort of ride where we can speak frankly and, and get on with how we're going to get to a better place together but you know that's going to come with some bumps and yep. some clumsy conversations <laughs> that's okay um as as long as you know we, we both are becoming better and you know I, I think of my my wife and ours relationship that's that's it you know we, Open, we, we it's it's frank it's, communication. You know, we, exactly yeah. it's tough and but that's okay we, yeah. we get to a much better place as a result of it so. yeah the um, interesting thing about some tough conversations is Coming into Swiss, you've got a, a family business that's been around for a while. No doubt in any journey there are bumps and tough moments. How do you keep alignment with a family when, I don't know whether you were perceived as an outsider, you ever thought you are an outsider, but were you always pulling in the same direction? Were there ever moments 
you know, where you're sailing too close to the sun that you're in danger of fracturing. How do you manage that? So early on, that was never a challenge because uh, we all, all of our, the two other shareholders that, you know, I eventually had the privilege to buy into the business uh, with um, and who had set up the business, uh, we, we, um, we, you know, prior to us working together and even in my first sort of six months of them kind of introducing me and, and settling me into my role, uh, it was very much a conversation around culture first. And, and so there was a very much shared values in that regard. And, and I, I think the, the issue for the business was that, um, it had grown to a point that it just didn't know how to create big system, big company process around its business practice and KPIs and so forth, yep. but then also around its culture and how that would connect to values and, and then how that would then become relevant to an organisation as a whole. So I, I was effectively a conduit of shared ideas and values and, and helping the, the organisation transition from the sum of one or two people that saw that that's where we needed to be uh, to a group of implementers who implemented but didn't get the idea of what would make a great culture so so that's where that that's where I came in and and and, and helped the business grow and, and turn into what it eventually did yeah um, going high profile you bring on ambassadors uh, this country is notorious for cutting people off at the knees or trying so on this journey you get some negative press in particular um, the chaser crew mm. um, what impact does that have on you personally where you've got to come in every day and wear all the bullets and keep the smile keep everyone unified does it does this take a personal toll on Radic? look the first time it happened was when our tagline was questioned by a competitor which had been approved for nine years prior to that that you know tired stress you'll feel better on swiss and and we were then page three of every newspaper across the country with tired stress, you won't feel better on Swiss. And so that was my first rub um, <laughs> in, in, with the media um, in, in a kind of a, a challenging way. Um, and, and, and look, there'd been other uh, research um, that, that had shown that some vitamins potentially had negative effects and obviously they would be sensationalised by the media. Um, so I'd kind of seen a little bit of that stuff, but then when it was more brand specific, that, that was hard. You know, I had a, a, a family friend, uh, walk up to me and sort of, are you a criminal? And hold that in front of me the morning that had come out. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and so, so you kind of live and learn about various reactions to it. What we did that day was bring the whole team in yep. that was relevant. Um, and, and, and just got around and, and got in a huddle and how we're going to address the issues and what steps we needed to take to get through the crisis. Um, and we got through and, 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 and you know, there's a whole story that's related to that, but I won't go into that much detail. But more specifically, when it, when it sort of that, that same story kind of got regurgitated by the, the, uh, the, the, the checkout crew, the chaser crew. Ah, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and that was the, it was the first episode of the checkout. And and and, and it, 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 it had called itself a comedy program, but it what it cheekily did was um, was use the the credibility of Choice magazine and that they were working with Choice to to sort out, you know, the the wheat from the chaff. Uh, and, and we were the first uh, first um incident that they focused on so you know there was a good two million people watching that show um and and so i had no issue with them challenging the industry uh the the brand but when they they went my father um which they did in that which was grossly unfair because we'd always very transparently talked about our relationship and was on our website actually spoken to uh, papers many times and there's many published material that you know we my father's uh an active researcher in the space and and so and they kind of linked him to a a um a a product that was a appetite uh 
reduce it. I can't suppress say, it. Suppress it. Thank you. An appetite suppressant. And um, and so he'd done no research on that, and they, as if he'd done the research on it. And anyway, we 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 took them on legally, and um, and well, my father did, and 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 we obviously was helping in the background. Um, you know, it's just because you know it's fine if they have a go to corporate organisation, but an individual whose life is predicated on research and doing the right thing and he's always worked for not-for-profits all his career and he's an academic, um, was pretty tough. And, and we got a statement of regret out of them, which I don't know if the difference between regret and, and apologising. Le- probably legal, probably dollars, I'd say. <laughs> um, so that was enough. And, yeah. and all we needed was that to, to show that what had run actually was wrong. Was, was wrong. Yeah. And, and it was really disappointing for uh, a national broadcaster that we pay good taxes for to, to not do the right thing. So, so yeah, that, that was hard. That and was the probably pressure on you. Really tough. I mean, I, as I say, I, I've got no issue with me, CEO and, 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 uh, as a brand taking on that because, you know, we've got a massive mandate to advertise and do what we do and can put out to press our position really efficiently. But when it becomes personal like that, that's pretty light. Yeah, and I, and I suppose what I'm driving at is, you know, leaders like yourself, staff in particular, um, look to you for that bulletproof kind of leadership. The morale comes from you. And I'm sure there are days where you didn't feel like getting out of bed, like, why is this happening? It's too hard. I'm, I'm, I'm just running a business and they're attacking my family. I mean... Yeah. Look, I, 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 for me, I had those days privately with my father. And, and this is where my shareholders and Stephen, our majority share, he was really supportive and, 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 and Michael wrote a, a brilliant piece about it. Um, for me, I, I knew what I was getting into. I knew this was going to be tough. I mentioned that my father's research was done in the 70s. It didn't get published in British Medical Journal till the 90s because people would laugh at him about saying that diet might cause a heart attack and how things have changed spectacularly. So I knew, I know that anything in nutrition is has got this kind of yeah. friction going on. Yeah. So I was ready for that fight. I knew that, that that that's what I was going to be walking into and none of it really surprised it me. It eventually just came um, Yeah, and that's okay. Yeah. It's fine. I, I think our main thing is that we had nothing to hide and we always be really transparent about what, what our, our message and those that cared. Uh, they would, they would, they would review it. And to, to be honest with you, it never actually affected sales. And, and that, that's the one thing you'd look at weekly. Have we dropped in scan sales and, and have we, are we losing consumer confidence? And that never happened. So your customers then were pretty rusted on and loyal to your product. I think people get that in the nutrition space, uh, people have opposing views and, and they understand that there's this, this kind of confluence happening and, 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 you know, conventional medicine is still catching up with, yeah. uh, nutritional lifestyle yeah. medicine. And, yeah. and they're slowly integrating, but it's going to take us a long time before we get there. Yeah. Um, now at the end of this Swiss journey, you've ridden all the bumps, all the highs and the low, lows. You have a, have a great exit, you know, a terrific buyout. Um, when that happened, what is that like? Is it relief? Is it ecstasy? Or I've spoken to some people who've had great exits and a lot of them have said it's the saddest day of their life. <laughs> what was it like for you? I was absolutely done. So um, I was, uh, we'd been trying to get a deal done for four years prior to yeah. that deal getting done. So, and there was a lot of false starts. Yeah. And so our relationships, it was a much broader shareholding group by then. And our, our relationships, you know, I could only kind of, ratchet them up and get them excited about the run ahead so many times. Yeah. And then, you know, we'd hit a few bumps and, you know, a few bumps over a 12, 13-year journey. You start to remember each one and, you know, I probably should have been fired three or four times over. Um, but they stuck with me. And, you know, nine months before we sold, uh, a lot of the other shareholders didn't have any debt against what they had invested. Um, and, and we got offered, you know, essentially 100 million, but we had 70 million debt, so we would have got 30 mil. Afterwards, so and I had fifteen percent. I had about fifteen mil debt, if you included my house, um, and, and so I would have been bankrupt if we'd taken that offer. And it was a great offer if you didn't have any debt. Um, but we managed to sell for a much bigger sum a few months later, nine months later. Um, and and so, but that was hard, you know, getting people 
focused on getting that done. And then right up until even the last sort of half hour, uh, I'd always said to the people buying the business that I'll stay on for two years and help you find the right leader for the business. I'm here to help out. Um, yeah, they put in a clause that they would sue me for 100 million US if I left within 14 months. So that was tough. So you go, hang on, I've done the deal. They call that a golden handcuff. Yeah, that was a golden handcuff. So, so I, 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 I would have been open to that if we just had the discussion, but to have it just thrown in 30 minutes prior to, and then me having to work out, well, what sort of board am I going to need around me to make sure that this is viable and all of that? So yeah. there were some strong conversations around structures that would be, that would be acceptable for me to work within if I was going to have the golden half and be the only one with a set of golden hands. Well, we're, we're talking much different scale, but a similar thing happened to me at my exit signing mm-hmm. up in Sydney. Um, the guy, the lawyer for the other side, passed over an escrow agreement, said you need to wow. sign this. Ah. Because we'd always been talking about a no escrow deal. Yeah. You know? I said, well, if you want me to stay, you've got to provide a workplace that I want to stay. Mm-hmm. And they said, take that. My lawyer grabbed it and said, yes, we'll review that. We'll get back to you first thing. <laughs> um, and we never signed it. Yeah. <laughs> well, we did. <laughs> so your lawyer played that well. Um, but look, the the... The, so how I felt was I was just spent. I went home and, and said to Helen, you make an awesome chicken soup. Can we enjoy that? And that was it. That was the celebration. Nice bowl of chicken soup. Very healthy. Um, and looking back, I mean, you've obviously had time to sort of look back on the journey. You get some luck. You do a lot of hard work. But you persevere. What's the, what's the sort of secret, do you think, that you succeeded where others have not gone as far, not got to the exit door. What do you think happened in that journey? I think that if, you, if you're exiting, you'd need tailwinds. So trying to exit in a headwind situation is challenging. Sometimes it's the only option you've got. Uh, I think making sure that the team around you, are, you, you, you they're not only your your team, but they, they are your great friends and you, you've, you, you back each other. Yeah. Uh, and you know what each other brings to the table and, and you can really trust each other. Um, and, and so that, that got us through. That got us through some really challenging times and ensure that we're all put in that extra bit to, to get an extraordinary outcome. And, and we, had, we all had to be pretty extraordinary what we did to, to ensure what happened happened, which was the exit event, but it was tough. And you did sail close to the sun a few times. I mean, I don't know if it's true, but there was speculation your US foray uh, took took you very close to the brink. I don't know if that's true, but that was what was reported. Yep. How do you then assimilate failure and think, you know, well, if I go down, this is this is the lesson I'm going to learn or this is how I'm going to view uh, a corporate failure or fade out? Yeah, so we, we, we had failed in the US and we had 70 million debt and zero profit in Australia. But we, what we'd always done is hedged our way of advertising. And for me, my pillow and our pillow of where we could find margin again was the amount we're spending on marketing. So we were spending 30 to 50 mil on marketing, depending on what time it was per annum um, in our journey for the last sort of five years. Yeah. So it, what we did is we just stopped advertising. Yep. And the brand had that much momentum anyway. It was okay to stop. And that enabled us to get profit back in by time yep. and also review what advertising was working and not working. And so we did a lot of analytical work and, and that's where we found the China phenomena. So there was there were stores in Chatswood, uh, Box Hill, Springvale that were selling 10 times more product than areas like Hawthorne. Um, or, or areas where uh, there wasn't a huge Chinese population um, and a huge amount of Chinese students, Chinese nationals that had moved out from Australia or, or Chinese tourists. So places like Rundle Mall in Adelaide was was really poppy because he had the, the university as well as um, right. tourists going okay. for, for wine. Um, and, and so, so yeah, we went out and we, we saw this phenomenon on, on our 
on our numbers and there was our national field sales manager was saying you know there's there's some big accounts out there that are focused on aging customers and and we and i said let's go and see these people so we went out and saw them and i quickly observed that no one was actually trying to sell to them there wasn't a point of sale in mandarin there weren't personalities that connected with them but thankfully our global thinking the olympics alan degeneres nicole kidman Whilst they're not huge, well, the Olympics is big in, in China. Whilst, you know, and it Nicole, was in China. Sorry? The Olympics was in China? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so right. we, we, we kind of had this kind of nice positioning. I think our, it was Beijing and then we had um, uh, London um, and then they had a Winter Olympics as well. And, and so, so, you know, and then so what would happen is that remember our products had this great retention is that Nicole Kidman, while she's not that big in the in China because they only have X amount of films that they release, unless it was in a superhero film. Um, and she did a couple of those, so they know who she was. But she'd done Chanel, yep. um, Jimmy Choo's as well, yep. um, Amiga, um, and billboards everywhere for her. So, the, But then what happened is the influencers, so the famous people in China, the locals, would try the famous Western person's product. And because of our great quality product, they would get online and talk socially about how well our products were working. Wow. So it just exploded from there. And then what we did is we found there were 60 stores that we called Project Gold. I went and got a person that was working in the watch business um, and they were very focused on the Asian consumer, brought that person to, to run our sales and marketing side of the business. And we were, you know, a year ahead of any others working out that there was an Asian market in Australia. So you, you're 12 years old and you're pivoting your, your business model. To yeah, so that's, we had to find something. So we, and we actually, because we had so much debt, it was not only just reducing it to 30 mil because we thought maybe three, four years we'll pay down the debt. We paid it back within 12 months once we got on that strategy. And so. you must be able to live with numbers on a page and see all this debt and still function as, I mean, that would freak me out. I mean, you know, you've obviously got a, a good appetite for risk. Well, I think that you learn you, you learn a business as you get more and more comfortable with it. And, you know, I had a fair run at driving it, and that's why I kind of say is practising your superpowers, getting to know a business. You know, don't move too quickly in a business to, to, to suddenly rationalise it and move it to a point that you think is going to get there a whole lot faster. Yeah, you can lose, use your experience from the past. Um, but take your time and, and really learn the industry inside out and then work out how you're going to crack the code of it and do it better than anyone else is doing. Yeah. Now, you've moved from that into being on the other side of the table, being the investor now in, in startups. What are you looking for? What's your philosophy? So we, we're called Light Warrior. We bring light to the world because um, you know, we, we feel like there's a, a better way of doing business by being... You know, focused on culture. Um, so that's really important. The people we invest with are, are really, really important. And our foundation is called Light Folk. So that's, you know, my wife runs that. And we're providing for the good folk. Um, and she's working on this wonderful not for profit um, uh, retreat that's in partnership with the National Trust. But I won't talk about that. That's her thing. Um, but yeah, so, so we believe that, you know, I, I believe capitalism and our version of democracy. Um, it's probably the best the world gets and, and the biggest competitor we have are, you know, like the, the Chinese autocratic system and, and it's a good effective system but it's not what I'd like to see um, running uh, the world. So I think we have to protect what we've got and yep. make it better yep. and so capitalism is a big part of that and you know, four out of five of us work in business. So for me it's been conscious about what we do as leaders and so we can make massive change by all making our workplaces extraordinary places to be because then our societies will be the same. So I believe a lot of the frustration that's in the, you know, the, the global um, Western world um, is, is the direct result of people not caring about their workers and, and the people they work with yep. and the environment they provide for. So my call to action is for businesses to think about that and, and to protect what we have and to, to do a much better job of providing for, you know, for people's lives and, 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 and that starts in the workplace. Now, um, got to ask you about made establishment. It's probably still going on, so it's pretty raw. Looking back, though, early days, what would you do differently? Yeah, so it's, it's a venture and, and we've got, 
12, 13 different ventures um, and you expect 40% of them to fail, 40% of them to give you your money back and 20% to pay for everything else. Shoot the lights out. Potentially one of them to absolutely shoot the lights out. Thankfully, we've, we've had enough to at least pay back whatever we've done and and we've got one that that's looking like it or a couple actually that look like they'll shoot the lights out in the next couple of years so so it's a, it's a really nice blend and the unfortunate thing with the maid group is that um, it's probably the most high pro, high profile 30 million uh, turnover business to tip over in this country with the amount of press it got um, and, and the fundamental with that is and if you go back to, to what I talk about is that unfortunately we, we had a, we, unfortunately the, the greatest strength for us became our greatest weakness and, and that was um, George and, and George is, is, is an outstanding entrepreneur creative thinker and I say entrepreneur in the creative sense he reinvents his menus every week and, and I've eaten, eaten at some of the finest restaurants in the world and he's by far and away the best chef um, that I've ever experienced um, his food from and he's won awards that Australians haven't won in this country um, overseas and, and so he's considered one of the world's great chefs um, and, and yes Master Chef has been wonderful for lifting his profile um, but unfortunately um, you know, I didn't move fast enough to ensure that he wasn't vampiring our brand. You know, the only person um, that, that people were related to our group, and and so we'd started to do that with with bringing on Yochi, and and you know, I didn't move fast enough with bringing other chefs, and we did it all too late. Um, and unfortunately, the bushfires and the coronavirus got the better for us, and you know, we got to New Year's Eve very, you know, you know five five odd percent off where we needed to be, and then. Then the bushfire started and, and, and business was down 50% and, and we just couldn't, we didn't have enough enough money in the balance sheet, more money to put back into those businesses. We yeah. needed them to work. It was a last-ditch stand for that to happen. And unfortunately, we're in the position we're in where, you know, a lot of people lost jobs and, and, and George has lost his house, his business and his, his, his work with TV. And I think that's too brutal a price to pay when you think about, you know, every corporate, you know, a lot of, not every, most corporates working with awards have had wage underpayment and overpayment issues like we did and we self-reported. Um, and there are plenty that, that aren't and, and don't get the same level of scrutiny we got. Well, Woolies has gone again in the press today. They're even bigger than the $380 million they first thought. It's probably double that. So. Yeah. It doesn't surprise me. So I, for me, government unions have a lot to answer for. They've created this monstrosity that we've got. The UK, New Zealand don't have award wages. Let's just pay people properly for what they're doing per hour. Why complicate it? I, I can't believe that someone can't look at what they should be paid for the week and not be in the position where they can question their employer yes. and say, I've worked 30 hours. This is what I should have been paid. Yeah. Why haven't you paid me right? Yeah. And then it's fixed. Yeah. It's a two-way conversation. I, had the, I, I worked under a award wage, which is a lot simpler than what we have now. There's 60 different ways you could pay someone in a restaurant. When I worked at Village, it was five different ways you could pay someone. Yeah. So it was, it was far less complicated and I knew exactly what to do. And... The reason why they had that different sort of agreement because they had an enterprise bargaining agreement, and and you have to be a sophisticated organisation, sophisticated organisation before you can um, before you can make that happen, and and so most my power operations aren't, and and George's business wasn't that. It had yeah. grown from a very small business to you know a small a, a bigger business, but its sophistication wasn't great, and you know coming into that business within three months, we saw there were issues with payroll and. We tried to do the right thing. We paid people back and unfortunately we couldn't change sentiment. Do you ever look back and go, geez, we should have done a bigger DD, a due diligence at the time? Or You, know? you can't really pick that stuff up. I yeah, mean, right. Woolworths didn't pick it up. You know, IBM Coles didn't, didn't pick it up. It up. Like, I, I could name yeah. <laughs> Morris Blackburn lawyers didn't pick it up. Like, you, you, yes, we could have done. Now I know where to look. And we'd go to checking those things, yeah. but uh, at I the mean, time, yeah. and at the time, really, I mean, it was George saying he was buying the business from his partners. If I had said I was buying the business from his partners, it would have been a much higher multiple. So we funded George to buy the rest of that business in thinking that everything was going to 
be okay. But it wasn't, unfortunately. Let's talk about the Hawthorne Football Club then. <laughs> There's uh, uh, you sitting on a board of a football club. Um, what do you bring to the table there? So for us, it's uh, it's about strategy and governance, and I'm there to share my my experience in leadership, culture, um, and then most importantly to focus on new revenues for the club. Yeah. And so we have a group called the Dare to Be Different Committee, and and we review uh, opportunities that. You know, makes sense for the club to to look at you know diversifying its revenue streams while it's not moving too far away from its core business. So, so that that's great fun. And then also, we're, I'm on, on a committee and, and, and driving a um, the capital campaign, the fundraising for for our, our venture out at the Kennedy Centre. Yeah. Um, so, so that'll be a massive. Craig, initiative. Is Don's got out for that one as well. Yeah, that, it'd be great if Don could come on board and help us um, with. Um, getting um, some big numbers um, committed to by all of our wonderful members. And what about, uh, what do you learn if you're sitting ever in close proximity to a guy like Jeff Kennett? What does a person like that teach you? Well, I was in such a privileged position where Jeff, you know, we, we had a relationship and he was fantastic when we had challenging times at Swiss. He'd, he'd get me in and, and ask me how I was going and, He'd take the time to, to connect with me. So when he, he started as president, he, he came and saw me and said, would you, would you join on, on the mandate we just discussed? And uh, what a privilege to be yeah. working with someone as such an extraordinary leader and, um, and, and, and to watch how he goes about his craft. So it's been fantastic. And yeah. the, the, the energy in the place is exceptional. I'm really excited by what's possible this year. I, uh, I say the Australian people have uh, missed out federally by not having uh, Jeff Kennett run for federal politics, but that's a different discussion. <laughs> now, we're going to uh, finish off on the quickfire round. Mm-hmm. I've changed it up for 2020. Uh, what invention do you hope to see in your lifetime? Clean energy. What's a lesson learned the hard way? Not, not having fun in everything you do. What book should every company builder read? <laughs> Depends on what phase it's part of your journey. At the moment, it's the golden sequence, which is around meditation. What's the best interview question in your toolbox? Why? What experience shaped who you are? Having to take on something larger than whatever people thought I was capable of doing. What question are you asked more than any other? Do vitamins really work? (laughs) I'm not going to ask you for the answer. Um, What advice should first-time founders heed? Our persistence is key. Well, Radek Sali, thank you for your time. It's been very educational and entertaining and uh, wish you all the best for 2020 except for the Hawthorne Footy Club. (laughs) Thanks Tony, champion.